What started as a college course at the University of Washington has become a textbook for the world. Carl Bergstrom and Jevin West's new book teaches us how to live in a world that's full of it and how to spot BS in ourselves. You think you know it when you hear it. In plain English, the first reaction a whole lot of people had to what we're going to show you first tonight here was, do they think we're stupid? There are a myriad of ways in which data can be misused to influence audiences. In a time when we have access to more data than ever before, where does your source of information get that info? A press release? Critical thinking is required when there's bad information masquerading as fact. Not everyone was born with the debunking gene, but we know someone who was. Spokesman Review columnist Sean Vestal leads the discussion as we welcome Carl Bergstrom and Jevin West to the virtual Northwest Passages stage. Is trying to lead you in the opposite direction. Whereas the bullshitter doesn't necessarily even know what the truth is, certainly doesn't care what the truth is, and it's just trying to feed you a line. Yeah. I believe he concluded that, he, that, that a bullshit is worse than a lie. In, certainly in a very way. dangerous like, in a different way. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. It's, this, it's this just indifference to factual, whether something's factual or not, right? And it's, yeah. Uh, you know, Ellen, who's tuning in to watch tonight, she had asked um, how you how you decided to teach a class on this, how, how it was that you originally came to this as a, um, a subject in that way. So, um, you know, Jevin has been respond. Jevin's a, a, a data scientist at the University of Washington, and and uh, he's been responsible for designing and, and uh, implementing the data science curriculum out of the information school there, which has become sort of the hottest major you can do at the, at the university. Um, and a few years ago, he called me up um, and he said, hey, I'm going to be teaching a course on big data. And I said, oh, I want to teach a course calling bullshit on big data. And, uh, and so Jeff, you know, he laughed and said, I'd teach that with you. And I said, really? And he said, yeah. And so then we started, and I, so we talked about why I thought there was a lot of BS there. And, you know, I just, I just felt like, you know, all this big data stuff was being really badly overhyped. And it was just, you know, a lot of digital snake oil. Um, with you know occasional useful things, but but a lot of a, a lot of overhype and 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 then as we started talking about what would go in a course like that, we realized that it wasn't fair to narrow it down to just uh, big data. That one should we should really think about just all the ways that numbers and uh, mathematical models and statistics and all of these things are used to BS people. And you know, and then we realized like, wow, this is like this is something that we definitely need to to bring to our students because we spend so much time in the classroom teaching. Uh, you know, the mechanics of how you write a particular kind of code or do mathematical operations. And in the sciences, we don't spend all that much time thinking, you know, teaching how to think critically about whether the story you're being told is BS in the first place. Yeah, and to add to that, I would say it's probably the most important course we could be teaching to students. Um, I mean, this is, you know, when we, when I think about all the classes that I've taught and all the classes I took as a student, I think this is one of those things that probably should be the first thing a student takes when they get here, but probably before they get to the university and maybe the last thing. So it's, it, you know, we, I don't care if students memorize, you know, the Krebs cycle. I don't care if they know exactly, you know, what year a particular event happened. I don't care that they necessarily know exactly, you know, the ideal gas law. But I, what I do care is that they can look critically at any argument arguments that come in terms of, you know, in data or in any form 
and they can and they can and they can question it and they can look for the the ways in which um, it may be telling something that might not be what is on the on the surface. So I think it's one of the most important classes we can teach. And actually, we have so much fun. Um, Carl and I, I mean, we we argue back and forth. The students have a lot of we have a lot of laughter in the class. We also teach it in a nonpartisan way. We really, really spend a lot of time making sure that if we're going to pull an example from at least the political left, when we do talk about politics, which isn't all the time, we make sure that we try to balance that with with examples from the other side as well. Uh, what's in your experience, how prepared are students to begin to sort of question and challenge? Um, I think I guess I, I, think, would, I would assume generally they they are kind of ready to challenge things, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. In the ways you're talking about, you know. I mean, I mean, if people are prepared to do that, they're very interested in how to do it. What kind of surprises me uh, is that these students who are you know so-called digital natives um, often aren't so savvy about the uh, about the sort of you know relative uh, quality and and accuracy of different information streams on the on the internet. And so um, you know, definitely that is that's something where the students have to have some a fair fraction of the students have some catching up to do there in terms of just thinking about you know what what constitutes a reliable source and and how do i find one and how do i you know triangulate and verify that that you know the story that i just saw on facebook is actually true and and so on uh but in terms of like being ready to just you know dive into this notion of critical thinking i mean that's what humans do we we're, we we all you know are made to do this yeah, and I would say that anyone has that ability. I mean, one of the things that we want to convey in the book is, is that anyone can do it. They don't need advanced degrees. It, it, this is an empowering book. And if I hope that can, is conveyed when people read it, that it should make them feel, you know, that much more empowered after, after reading it. And I will say that there are some things that students are good at that we have found and some things they're not good at. So if we give them a website that looks strange, it has strange fonts or there, you know, there's something sort of strange about the presentation. They can identify that. They can identify clickbait. There's things that they do well that actually they do probably better than the older generation. But the older generation does things better that they don't always do. We've been working with the ARP and will be um, over, the, uh, over the next quarter uh, on some projects where we're bringing their critical thinking skills and teaching them some of the digital skills that a lot of the, the younger generation knows. But there are things like, for example, if we give a student an article that they read in, a, in a, news, a, a news media site and we say, follow the source, go to the source and find out it comes from a science article. And then we say, is that a legitimate science venue or not? They struggle with that. They struggle with our, our, um, articles that, that have more data sort of wrapped around the argument. And those are things that we try to address. And so there are things that they're not, they're not so prepared for. They struggle like all humans do with correlation and causation oh, kinds yeah. of arguments. There's, there's, um, there's certain things that they do well, but there's certain things we're, 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 we haven't done well enough in education to prepare them with this new information economy. I would presume, and you tell me if this is right or wrong, that, that uh, with an older group, those of us who've spent years sort of deciding what we believe, that we have a different problem with with critical thinking, which is that maybe we think we know <laughs> a lot already. You know, we've we've already kind of admitted and dismissed things from our from our set of beliefs. I don't know how how big a challenge is that when it comes I th to. I think that's huge. You know, um, Neil, the author and sociologist Neil Postman um, had had uh, you know wrote um, uh, a number of things, but he had this uh, 
he, he, he wrote this one essay on BS. It was the first scholarly essay ever written on BS, and it was in the 60s. It was quite a re revolutionary thing to actually write about at the time. And uh, in there, he presents what he describes as uh, Postman's second law. And that is, the at any given time, the source of BS that you have to be most concerned about uh, with is yourself. And uh, you know he's getting at the idea that we all have these confirmation biases and we're very good at motivated reasoning. And as we get a little older and as we get a little bit more maybe set in our ways, and also as we get a little bit better at, uh, at, at you know, defending our beliefs and arguments, we become more and more set because we can always find ways to convince ourselves that the thing we believe before we started looking into it is true. And so one of the things we really stress in the book is that, uh, you know, is how to, is to try to avoid this confirmation bias, to try to be at least as critical, if not more critical, of the stories and data that, that support your pre-existing beliefs um, so, that you can, so that you can find out when you're making mistakes is something that, you know, as scientists, it's one of the most re important reasons to collaborate with people. Jeff and I do this for each other all the time. You know, I'll say like, hey, look, I got these data and they show this thing. And then Jeff will say, well, like, hey, did you look at that? And I'll be like, no, but I don't need to. And he'll be like, yeah, you go look at that. I'll go look at it. I'll kind of come back and be like, yeah, so, okay. <laughs> you know, I was wrong. And uh, it's really useful to have someone who can do that for you, right? It's actually more often the other way around. But I do try to balance a little bit. Carl's really good at, at seeing that stuff too. But I would also, and to add to that, around older, the older generation, there was some interesting work by um, a historian and an educator at Stanford. His name's Bruce Weinberg. And he's done some work looking at how um, some people just do better fact checking than others. And so they had people like even <laughs> professors at university sort of take an article and they would pour on it and just, 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 just dive as much as they could into the article thinking they could just find problems with the argument and with the content. Um, and they did far worse on this assessment that they had done um, than just some of the younger generation that would just flip and do what's called horizontal reading. They'd get out of there fast. They would go to, they would multi, open multiple tabs in this digital environment we live in, find, ah, this has been debunked by Snopes. Or, ah, this is a website that I just looked up the, you know, who is, and it's, you know, from a conspiracy theory group. Ah, or, you know, I did reverse image search and this is a stock image somewhere. You know, there's these tools that they didn't, that didn't exist before. Um, and also there's tools for misinforming people that didn't exist before. So it's hard, you know, the, this generation that didn't grow up in that, I think it's there. It's not that they don't have the ability to critical think, they definitely have it. But like Carl says, and what you said too, Sean, they do get set in their ways. We all get set in our ways and that can sometimes be a crutch. So social media obviously has played a big role in the way that we share things and the way the bullshit gets shared and accepted and believed. Um, I wonder if you could just talk about some of the ways that social media has changed uh, the maybe just paved the way maybe for bullshit which just sort of changed the amount or the nature of it yeah absolutely i think you know to think about that it's important to think about sort of how we got to the point of having social media so you know until uh until the 1990s or so uh most of the media that we consumed was professionally produced it was either you know professionally printed um, and so it was going through a publishing house with, uh, with editors and that sort of thing, or it was, you know, maybe being uh, put on the news or, or some other show. So it had professional producers and, and all of that. So it was being very tightly vetted and controlled in terms of like what was getting out there. And then we had this marvelous idea, right, as a, as a, as a society that, hey, let's, uh, let's take all the computers in the world and let's link them up together and let's make various ways that people can uh, 
write digital, write information um, that looks just as good as a book. And so whether that's, you know, type digital typesetting or whether it's, uh, you know, uh, just web design these days, um, that suddenly sets something up so that everybody in the world then becomes a potential content producer instead of just the people with the financial and political and social capital to be able to take advantage of the pre-existing media channels. So that, you know, we were very excited about this. There was this enormous optimism in the 1990s about how it was going to bring all of these new voices into the conversation. It was going to be this democratizing force and all of that. What happened, of course, is that we got flooded with information, which, uh, you know, we could have anticipated. And, you know, one solution to things like this was, you know, search engines like Google have been brilliant at, at, at dealing with that. Um, but as information is breaking very, very quickly and that people have their own you know, particular special interests and so on, um, even that wasn't enough. And so what we start to get is we start to get the Web 2.0 uh, world with social media and all of that, where we all play the role of editors for one another. And so instead of having, you know, uh, professional producers and editors determine what content I see, I got my uncle Rob is like determining what content I see. And he is a nut and he's a conspiracy theorist and, uh, and he doesn't really even care whether it's true or not, or, or you know, we all have these you know, people in our lives. And so the, the, because we are all taking on this editorial role or this kind of curation role, um, that fundamentally changes the, the sort of the quality of information that people are receiving. There are narratives getting through that weren't getting through before, but the average quality has dropped, I think, substantially. And just to add to that, also, I noticed that Carl and I are wearing very similar shirts. We didn't plan that, but a uh, little different. All three different of us are wearing similar yeah, shirts. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. That's how one rolls. This yeah. is as fancy as I've been in months. I, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> Me too. As you could tell, I took a shower. Um, so I, I, the one thing I was going to say, in addition to what Carl said, in, in addition to the human side of social media, there's also the algorithmic and computational oh, yeah. side that really is, has, has pulled us into a, a different, a truly a different world. So we have a system now that has one big objective and that's sticking your eyeballs to the platform. And that's not something they deny. All the CEOs will talk to their shareholders about this. It's about sticking you to the platform so that you look at ads. And so really they don't get, care so much about what you see. And remember our definition about blatant disregard for truth or logical coherence and grabbing your attention. We see, you know, the platforms really in some ways are like the biggest BSers of them all because they're just gathering your attention, keeping your eyeballs on there. And with algorithms doing everything they can to give you things you want to hear and what you, you, you know, you're looking for and only the things that your friends might believe and the narrative of the world that you might believe, then that becomes problematic when what we're trying to do is sift through all this misinformation and get it, you know, some kind of truth or fact. And it, you know, from the platform standpoint, they, they just simply don't care. You have algorithms, uh, recommendation systems, A-B experiments going on all the time just to stick you to the platform. And if it's a conspiracy theory video that keeps you on longer, well, I'm gonna give you more conspiracy theory videos. And that's really problematic, um, especially if, we need, if we're trying to make collective decisions based on good information and not conspiracy theory. Well, your last comment speaks to this a little bit, but I was I was going to note that you say this is a huge problem in the book. You write that this is a huge problem for a democracy. A, a, a absence of critical thinking uh, is a big problem for democracy. Uh, how so? I think people have to be able to. I mean, there. You know, I I, I think that people have to be able to make informed collective decisions based on 
information, true information about the world. And so that, you know, first of all, requires that we have the ability to um, determine what is true, reasonable information. And it also re requires that we have sort of a, a common currency or a common understanding about how we make sense of that information. And if we get to the point where um, we no longer, you know, so I mean, you can think about, you know, if you think about, uh, if, if you think about, you know, the, the sorts of arguments traditionally we've had politically, they'd be, you know, maybe we sort of agree on the facts, what the facts are, but we disagree on whether we should, you know, lower the interest rate as a response to a, to an economic crisis or something. And, and, and then you get to the point where there's some disagreement about what the facts actually are. And now we're sort of at the point where we not only disagree about what the facts are, but we even disagree about what are the reasonable procedures that one would use to come at those facts. So, you know, do you consult with experts and collect a lot of numerical data? Um, do you want some, do you, do you find somebody who has a, uh, you know, a strong, you know, gut instinct for the right thing to do and, and operates, makes decisive actions off of intuitions and anecdotes? Like, how should we figure out what the world's like and, and respond to it? And, uh, and, and if we can't even agree on that, it becomes very, very hard to have a national conversation, which is essential to democracy. You know, there's a question from Don, who's with us here, and he wonders uh, how it is you deal with people who might have, a, in his words, the truth as I see it mindset. Um, uh, just a sort of doubling, I'm going to interpret Don a little bit here, just the kind of a doubling down on, well, that's my opinion and I have the right to it, or that's my view, that's the way I see it, and being kind of impervious to people pointing out maybe that there's a problem with what they have to say. Well, and I, I think I think that's a, a cultural thing that we need to address early on in 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 our education system, and you know, it doesn't even have to be in our education system. That that if if that's how we operate as a country, we're, we're, I don't have as much hope for the future, and I'm a very hopeful person. Um, that we have to we have to be able to look to where your source is to defend your argument, or look to some. Um, uh, some evidence that supports whatever case you're making and that's fine actually when we talk we've talked to plenty of people that that really are impervious to well, well seemingly impervious to uh, changing their opinion about some policy or about some whatever topic that we're talking about and I think the the way to go about it and it's not always successful there's lots of different strategies and we're they're evolving for me personally but I think it's asking them you know where did where did they where did they learn that um, you know, you know, what, what kind of source, are, is it a reliable source, you know, you know, and, and start asking questions. Don't assume that they're stupid people. I think, you know, attacking someone personally is never a successful way of doing um, sort of BS cutting. Um, so I think we, we talk about this in the book where we say, you know, we, we don't, you know, ad hominem talks or attacks aren't going to get you very far. So let's focus in on the argument and try to, try to understand where someone's coming from, where their values are. So a lot of times, I think it's successful to say, hey, we both care about our kids, right? And, and maybe we think differently about vaccinations right now, but let's try to, let's, let's try to get some common ground on, on at least what we think is, is true and then, and then go from there. But I think it's starting with those kinds of things that at least helpful, but sometimes you can't break that, that impervious armor at all. And then you just have to, you know, I think, Go and talk with someone else, maybe. Hey, cut your losses. I mean, that's one of the things we say in the book. You know, there there's a point where you're not going to correct you're not going to correct all the BS in the world, right? And so there's a point where you just you know cut your losses and recognize that um, you know that conversation isn't going to go where you want it to. Yeah. Uh, 
what do you think are the key things that people should keep in mind as they approach any piece of information? My story, my column in the newspaper, your aunt's Facebook post, an article in The Economist, whatever. What are the habits of mind that are useful? I'll start with one, which is that there are, you know, there are three questions that any journalist would ask right away. You know, um, who's telling me this and how do they know it? And what are they trying to sell me? And uh, because all because everybody's trying to sell you something, it might be an idea instead of a car, but you know everybody's trying to sell you something. So um, it, just to put anything you're hearing into the context of those three, uh, those three kind of uh, claims um, is is very very useful. You know, suppose a, a week ago I had uh, I'd told you, hey, look, you know, I'd gotten on your show and said, you know, hey, look, by the way, I know who the VP pick's going to be. And, uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm going to let our listeners know who the VP pick is going to be. And so if you just ask those questions, you say, well, who's telling me this? Oh, professor at the University of Washington. Um, how does he know it? Well, how would a professor at the University of Washington have any clue what this carefully guarded secret was, right? And so at that point, you should already be skeptical and you can start to try to figure out, you know, unless I can tell you very comp compellingly, like how I know what's going on, then you know that, that I don't do this, you know, that I know that's not reasonable. Or if I come on here and I say, "Hey, look, you know, um, you know, uh, I, there, I've actually got this. Uh, I've got this. I've got this book here that's going to make you a millionaire. Uh, all you got to do is read it." You know, you say, "Well, who's telling me this?" And it's the buy author. It and of this, read it. The author, <laughs> buy it and buy it, buy it and read it. That's right. The author of this damn book. What's he trying to sell me? Well, obviously this book. And uh, you know, so you just like asking those questions, uh, you know, and, and applying them to just like even the post on the Facebook is is a very good start to sort of put information into context and just to turn on those sort of critical thinking facilities anytime you're processing information, because it's kind of easy to just sort of sit back and they, they call it doom scrolling now, right? Because all the news is bad news these days, but yeah. it's easy to just sit back and doom scroll. And, yeah, and, and I think in addition to that, those questions that Carl said, I mean, one of the most successful questions that we ask all the time and our students absolutely love and they'll come running into class, you know, at the, you know after they've read something and, and applied this one, which is, if something sounds too oh, good yeah. to be true or too bad to be true, it probably is very often. And so I think using that, um, at, having that at the very front of your mind, anytime you're looking at information, I think that's very useful. I think also just being curious. Everyone's curious. Humans by their very nature are curious. So asking questions like the questions that Carl asked, asking questions, where did they get this? You know, who's the source? How reliable is this course score or, or um, uh, the source? You know, where, you know, this claim about taxes, what, what are they, where, where did they get that data? You know, who created the data? I'm just, just being curious and asking questions. It also removes the, the personal element that always gets in the way and the emotional elements too. If, if you, if you just sort of be curious and, and sort of do it like you're, you know, an encyclopedia um, rather than, um, you know, a lawyer or something. I mean, you're trying to, trying to make a case. I think just, just being curious and also in the digital world that we live in with all the news, be very wary of the emotional evoking clickbait that's out there. There's, if you, if you, everyone knows this that consumes uh, news online. It's, there's so much emotion evoking stuff out there. If it's doing that to you, put a pause on a little bit, maybe think about whether this is something that's reliable. And of course, most importantly, like Carl had said, just question the source. Is this a source that gets it right most of the time? Do they, do they um, you know, admit mistakes? Do they have you know, this humbleness about getting to the truth? Because getting to the truth is hard. Um, most of the time. And so I think those are kinds of things that we look for. Now we have all these other details when it gets into quantitative BS, but you'll, we, we won't get into that right now. 
you know, I, you finished this book before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. I'm just assuming based on what I know of timelines. Yes, and, we did. And, we did. And you're at a place in Seattle and the University of Washington and, and your department at the University of Washington that has been in the middle of this in many ways. I guess I just wonder what, what your thoughts are on um, uh, bullshit in the pandemic. Like, uh, ha have you seen things that you would not have expected to see? Did you feel like your, your thoughts were sort of confirmed by what's happened? I don't know. What's, I mean, yeah, I mean, first of all, you could rewrite the entire book just using examples from the pandemic. Every yeah. single principle that we put in there, you could pick a story from the pandemic and, and do that. I think, you know, a lot of, you know, what we started to see at, 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 at first was, you know, almost exactly the kinds of stuff we expected, which was in, in January when there were these rumors of this, uh, of, of, of this, uh, you know, atypical pneumonia um, in in uh, Hubei province, uh, we started to see what looked to us very much like the signatures of uh, state-sponsored disinformation, and so we saw very well organized campaigns from large numbers of bots to push uh, wild conspiracy stories about hundreds of thousands of people dead in Wuhan and the bodies being burned and a sulfur dioxide cloud over the city showing that they were covering something up and, and, and an engineered bioweapon. So there were all these false rumors that were getting pushed uh, out there. And so it looked exactly like uh, kinds of disinformation that we were very, very familiar with. And we started tracking that. But as the, um, you know, as this became, as it became clearer and clearer that we were dealing with a worldwide pandemic, the landscape shifted a lot. And, uh, you know, the chatter was, you know, now the now the sort of organized actors doing this talking about it were kind of drowned out in the fact that all of us, you know, everyone in the world is thinking about this because it's affecting our daily lives. And then we ran into something new that I at least hadn't uh, particularly expected, having worked in epidemiology for 20 years, which is uh, the degree to which we have political polarization around very basic facts about the disease. You know, what is the infection fatality rate? Is it worse than the flu? How fast does it spread? Uh, you know, what, what kinds of things can we do to control it? Do masks work? Does hydrochloroquine work? Uh, does does uh, oleander work? You know, all of these kinds of things. And this was a, this I hadn't expected. And, and, it, and it was to me really striking because I could have, you know, I could have anticipated before the pandemic that you know, if we ever had a pandemic, you know, maybe people on the left would want universal health care, and people on the right would not want too many restrictions on business activity, or something like that. But I never in a million years could have said, oh, it's the left that's going to like masks, and hydrochlor, and the right that's going to like hydrochloroquine. I mean, this was just happenstance of like the way people's tribal affiliations laid out with respect to who advocated for what first, and that was the thing I really didn't see coming in the pandemic. Yeah, and one of the things that 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 we're seeing um, when looking at this at the population level is that conspiracy theories that existed before the pandemic. So there's the conspiracy theory that 5G is sort of the root of all evil. And now, you know, the story is that 5G is really why we're all reacting poorly um, because it's suppressing our immune system to this coronavirus that normally would be just fine. I mean, but that you get these conspiracy theories that existed before and then are being completely amplified um, during this time in which there's a lot of uncertainty. Think the new information coming out is, is slow and people want answers fast. And so you have professional conspiracy theorists out there that make money and make a career out of jumping on crisis, crisis events, lever, leveraging the, the situation, hijacking really the situation is probably the right word, um, and increasing their influence by coming up with some solution that all you have to do is hold your breath 
or that you know vitamin C is going to to cure um, you know COVID. Um, or you know, you go. You know, I could talk for we could talk for hours about all the conspiracy theories that are arising. But I think um, we're we're also at a time when there is so much information. There are so many people that can create nice looking plots and nice looking websites that it's hard to distinguish those that are telling the truth and those that aren't. Because there's still there's multiple groups. Those that have no real position talking about you know you know the medical community and that you know that are referencing things that are not real science and then you have people that have spent careers working in this and so it's not that we don't listen to ever any you know there's only certain people we listen to but the, the the voices that really we should be listening to at least most of the time are getting drowned out by the way that social media works and how they're amplified in our national media so it it, it is harder i mean the, the 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 bullshit meter if there was a meter is just on high right now um especially because it's colliding with an election too so you have all these things going on um, that make it really especially hard to discern the truth. Um, and even if we had none of that, it would still be hard to get to the truth because learning about how this new novel virus that's infecting humans, how what it's doing, how to treat it, how to test for all these things, these are hard things on their own. Now add a bunch of bullshit into the system makes it especially hard. Yeah, you know who's guiding our pandemic response this week? It's it's uh, it's the My Pillow guy, not uh, not Dr. Tony Fauci, right? It's it's remarkable. Right. And, and you know the president is a is a figure of just sort of towering centrality, I guess, in the in the <laughs> country right now, and and he speaks in ways that I think are I don't think it's uh, crazy to call bullshit a lot of times, and. It, it, for example, I want to, I guess, to get to a certain kind of a thing that he does, which is to say, it has been said that, or mm -hmm. many people say, or, and, and I wonder if, if you thought about that, and I thought about it in the light of the, of the Gary Kasparov comment in here, which is yes, the intent right. is not to say this is true or that's not true, it's to eliminate. Annihilate maybe. truth, yeah. Annihilate it's, truth, there we go, sorry, yeah. yeah. Um, Anyway, I'm not trying to invite yeah, no, you to trouble politically, but I don't know if, you, if Trump seems like a figure of bullshit. I, mean, I think there's an interesting thing that's happened with Trump around the pandemic, which is that um, you know Trump treats everything like a PR crisis and like a public relations crisis, and that actually works remarkably well in 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 an awful lot of situations because um, he can pull people to his side and he can bring about the outcomes that he wants and so on. Um, it's really not working in a, for a virus because you can maybe you know fool another state about your your state intentions or something like that by slick talking it, but you can't slick talk a virus. And he's been trying to slick talk the virus since the very start, and that's you know that keeps failing. Um, and as a result, we've we've you know we've basically uh, you know missed seven months of opportunity to do more as a country to be uh, to be you know stopping its spread and to be in the same position as much of the rest of the world that's already gone through the wave and has it down very, very low. So I think that sort of natural tendency of his to, to really focus on that, on the public relations instead of the public health has, you know, this has been a thing that he was particularly ill-suited for, um, you know, compared to some of the other, uh, you know, controversies and challenges and other things that, where that tendency has served him pretty well. Yeah, and to add to, add to that, you, you had mentioned, Sean, this, this 
kind of trick, I guess you could call it, about saying, well, some people are saying, or it's been said, or that this, this is used often just to create doubt or to sow um, a little bit of confusion. And I think that's, it's quite effective. I mean, it was recently done, you know, with Kamala Harris, Harris's citizenship already. I mean, those kinds oh, of yeah. things make it, uh, you know, for those that, you know, aren't sure, you sort of just put that out there, even if you know it's not true and you just say other people are saying that. But if, that, if that's also done when it comes to health remedies or about the newest uh, information about a COVID, I, I think that can be especially dangerous. Um, and, you know, we've seen the, the effects of that. People, you know, doing things, drinking things that, that, that affect their health that, you know, they, maybe they wouldn't have if they, if they didn't hear that. So like Carl says, it's... Um, it's quite effective in a lot of situations, but it's it can be quite damaging in, in the current situation. I think one response to that among people kind of who are more coming from where I'm coming from politically is to really feel like you gotta get behind science and you wanna defend science. Mm -hmm. And then and then the next thing you know, you're treating some expression of science as though it's an oracle and it's um, as it's perfectly true all the time and that all you have to do is listen to science and that everything goes well reading your book doesn't <laughs> it doesn't leave one with the impression that that is the way science works no and you've really seen that with the pandemic i mean the pandemic has been spectacular in that way because i mean science is this sort of ongoing process where these initial ideas get put out there's a lot of uncertainty it gets changed and corrected as it goes. That's the whole point. Um, but some of the some sometimes stuff that's wrong still gets through, and uh, the changes don't get made. And there and there are these disagreements among good groups and things like that. And with the with the pandemic, it's been fascinating because all this is happening in like super fast motion. And so uh, you know, I taught a course at the University of Washington in the in the spring on uh, on the on COVID, and. Uh, it was fantastic for my students because usually when I teach this course on, on uh, medicine, we, we look at how medicine's evolved over 50 years. Um, but here we were able to look at the way that it evolved from the day the course started to the day the course ended. And there was just as much change, you know, all, all these things that we believed were too, true on the day the course started were we had learned were false on the day the course ended. And, and that really, you know, stresses the nature of how science is done and also the importance of saying like, look, you know, Tony Fauci is a very good scientist and he's an honorable man and he's, you know, and, and he's trustworthy, but he's not an oracle, like you say, you know, it's like, so there's things that Fauci thought were true in March that aren't true. And, and, and they, and, and they, and that's how science works because it doesn't have that sort of, you know, you know, it's not, it's not an oracle. I think you already said it perfectly. I just keep repeating the words. Right. And, and just, just to add to that, Sean, I mean, science is run by humans um, and humans respond to incentives and there are things that we can do to clean up the, the process of science and the incentive structures, but, but it still works. I mean, we, we really want to stress that despite some of those issues, it still works quite good. And you may be wondering, you know, why, why did you devote, you know, all that, all those pages to talking about science? Well, when talking about getting at truth, um, science has a pretty good system of, of getting at, you know, some elements of truth. And we could talk philosophically about what kind of truth we're talking about. But I think for, um, a world right now that's struggling with um, with issues of how we know things. I, I think it's some, it, it, it's a great reflection on that. And in addition to that, when we are track, tracking something down to its source, a lot of times it comes from the primary literature. It comes from science. It comes from research, or it comes from from um, 
you know, individuals that, you know, had some methodology by, about, you know, at getting at their conclusions. And so we can, we can borrow some of those ideas when thinking about this new world, this web 2.0 world that, that's really sort of taken over our information environments. Yeah. Um, a lot of what people think they know about science comes from uh, us in the media and the way we handle it. What do you see as the, the biggest problems there in terms of what actually happens in science and what comes through the filter to, to uh, that's a perfect setup for something I love to rant about. So I'm good. <laughs> okay. All right. Good job, uh, Sean. You got, you get them on a soapbox. Which right is, now. <laughs> uh, you know, which we've seen a lot of this in the pandemic and it's, you know, whenever you have a new study in science, um, almost every single, I mean, almost every single time, uh, that study isn't sort of like the last word on any particular problem. So, you know, somebody runs a, runs a study to, uh, figure out whether dexamethasone is, uh, is useful in patients with late stage COVID who are severely ill. Um, one would like to imagine that science is just, you know, there are these sort of facts that are lying around in the ground and scientists pick them up like Easter eggs and hold them up and then they're true. And so there's some study comes out says, oh, you know, dexamethasone helped these patients who are on ventilators. And then like, oh, that's a fact. And now, and, and, and that makes an interesting story. What, what actually happens though, a, a colleague of mine Natalie Dean had a nice uh, uh, metaphor for this. She says, each study is just a pebble on one of two scales. You know, you've got a scale that says dexamethasone is working, a scale that says it's not. And so when the study gets published, it's just a pebble. It's just, someone's just placing a pebble on one of the two scales. Now, that makes for a hell of a boring headline because, you know, the headline says, you know, new study uh, finds this. Uh, most scientists working in the, in the field are now 2% less confident of dexamethasone. That's like super boring. So like, you know, the headline you want is dexamethasone trial fails, scientists despair or, you know, whatever. And, uh, but it doesn't work like that. And so, and, and then what happens because and then, you know, the next one you show is like, oh, dexamethasone is, you know, the saving, saving drug. And then you, in the public, you get whiplash. And cause it's like, you know, it doesn't work. It does work. I mean, we've all had this for years with the like red wine with dinner or not. Does it help our heart? Right. And that changes every week and it's been changing every week uh, for, for years. And, and so, you know, not only is that sort of bad scientific science communication in terms of being somewhat misleading, but then it, you know, people don't get a good sense of how science actually operates. And they also become skeptical, like, why should I believe these guys? They like tell me a different thing every week. And, uh, and you know, nobody knows anything. And, and that's not really accurate. Um, yeah. So that's, that's my biggest frustration with the, with the way that the media uh, tend to present these things. And, and I think it's gotten a lot worse in this sort of, uh, clickbait era where every single headline is coming up on your iPhone against, you know, coming up against seven cats that look like Disney princesses. And so it's got to be like this really flashy headline if it's going to get that click, you know? Yeah. yeah. And journalists have to make money too. And so they are beholden to that revenue model that's, it's not great necessarily for democracy or for good quality journalism, but it's, it, you know, it's something you can show an editor. It's something that will get those advertising dollars and, and, you know, I don't, there's no perfect, you know, solution to fixing that. But I think part of it is that they need to, they need to sell, they need to sell those things, get people to click. And, you know, I think in the subscription model world, you know, there was, uh, you know, maybe a little bit less of that sort of stuff, but I think also scientists are complicit in all this. Carl and I talk Hell about yeah. this in the book where they'll, they'll get a call from a journalist. And if they're the only person that the journalist talks to, boy, you're going to sell that, that, that study as much as you can. Um, because again, scientists want, are selling something too. I mean, you know, I don't want to push it too far because scientists generally have a pretty good ethic about them and, and, and how they go about that. But 
But that becomes a problem too when universities and scientists themselves are selling it and then the, the journalist has to report on that. It, it's, it's, it's something that we certainly need to address because the public is getting whiplash and it's you know, hopefully not going to reduce trust in science. At this point, we're you know, still pretty, science is you know, pretty well trusted, but we need to not take that for granted. Well, I have a real appreciation for the ability that you guys show in this book and others in other places to to communicate to a lay public, which is uh, because, you know, I've written about science and I've worked with scientists to try to make sure that, that how I reported it was correct. And the ways you can get it wrong are myriad. And one of the things uh, reading your book that, that made me feel like uh, however vigilant you might be about reporting science in the press, you're not probably being vigilant enough. Um, I wonder what you think are the biggest challenges that the layperson faces in understanding where the where science might be limited. You mentioned causation. There's a lot of people who struggle with that, right? We want yep. to make things causal, I think, anyway. Well, well, so I, I think on that, I'll just answer real quick. Well, I mean, at least I'll give you a solution. I know what you, you want are some of the problems to watch out for, but I think one of the big problems is we don't have enough science journalists out there communicating. If there were more science journalists that had more time to think through, uh, you know, these tough problems, as you say, it's not easy to translate. If you have me translate my own work to the public, that's difficult to do. Imagine now taking someone else's work and trying to do that. But just to throw a number out, there was about 70 full-time science journalists in the United States over the last five years. I can get the exact stat. We should look it up so it doesn't sound like I'm bullshitting. Um, most of them are in sort of this gig economy type of world where they sort of write for one place, write for another. There's, there's not enough science journalists out there. And so if we, you know, to improve upon that, to help the public better understand the science, we need more people doing that tough translation. I let my phone die here. I was going to ask a question from the audience here. Um, I'm just going to read this one. What are your thoughts? Or do you, I'm sorry, do you find new learning systems helpful when researching unbiased information and data? For example, Sir Isaac Bacon and the Four Idols of the Mind. I'm hoping that is meaningful. Yeah. Um, to you guys. Okay. So I think. Um... I think we yeah we definitely want to think about um, all of uh, I mean we want to, you want to think about the ways that your own cognition can mislead you and can can trap you and there's been a lot more work that's been done on that you know fairly recently in uh, in, in psychology and places like that I mean I'm thinking of uh, you know things like uh, like uh, that book Thinking Fast Thinking Thinking Slow. Um, uh, Danny Kahneman's book. And uh, so I think, you know, being aware of those psychological tendencies that you have that may tend to be good rules of thumb, but can mislead you in specific cases is very, very powerful uh, technique. And, you know, as we wrote the book, I was thinking a fair bit about like, you know, how much of that stuff do we want to go into and made a sort of deliberate decision not to, you know, write a book that was about the sort of uh, elements of your own psychology that that can mislead you. But I think, you know, if you read, you know, you could read Danny's book as a as a you know complement to ours or something like that, and you would definitely get a sense of of uh, of what some of those problems are. Yeah, I mean, I think confirmation bias is one of the the major crutches that we have as humans. It's a, it's a bug. So I write a lot of code, and I think of it as sort of 
it's a bug of the human mind. And I think we have to be aware of that, but we can't overcome it. We all have biases. We have to overcome that. But there are things that we can do actively and sort of when thinking about, you know, system one, system two of Danny Kahneman's book that Carl's talking about. Well, you, um, you know, one of the things that we can do is pull out of one system of thinking and do proactive things like think of multiple explanations to things when you see that. Oh, good one. Um, really force yourself to, to, to really find another explanation for it and find out the different ways in which it could be manipulated. We have this exercise in class where we give the students all the same data. It's, it's health data from the uh, uh, World Health Organization or United Nations or one of these uh, 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 international organizations. And we say, you're going to make an argument if you're in this third of the class that, uh, that the American health system is the best. And then you're gonna make an argument that it's not and, and the other one's gonna be a journalist and try to report equally. And after doing this exercise with the same data, and with very powerful arguments that they all make, or sometimes sort of tongue-in-cheek kinds of arguments too, um, you find they find how easy it is to manipulate. And so when they see something, they might first think, "How could this be manipulated?" But thinking about being proactive about things might help us overcome those things. And of course, again, I, I, I don't want to oversell it, but sort of be being being curious and sort of pulling yourself into just trying to, to be an investigative journalist, I think is, is probably- What you yeah, said about multiple way. hypotheses is so important, right? I mean, so much of like what we're given is you'll, I mean, we haven't talked a tremendous amount about data in this conversation, but I mean, that's one thing that's really been brought to the fore with the pandemic is that we have all been looking at so much data and so many charts and like, I mean, it's just, they're in the newspaper every day. And it's really like, I mean, data are determining whether you can go out to a restaurant and all of this stuff, right? And uh, to, to a whole new level. <clears throat> and, and so it's very easy to come up with stories that are consistent with data. And there's this habit that we have to use ourselves, otherwise we fool ourselves as we do science, which is, you know, you have, you have your preferred hypotheses and, and hypothesis and then this data comes in and the data maybe, you know, supports your hypothesis and you think, great. And then what you have to do is like slow down and say like, okay, what other things could have explained the same pattern? that I see here and like, and I mean, this is something Jevin and I do together all the time when we're writing papers is like, you know, we'll get this exciting pattern and then it's, and it's like, well, okay, that could be the reason that we want it to be, or it could be these like, you know, or what are the other things that could have caused this? And then you, then you try to write those all down, you know, and, and, and figure out, can I rule these out or, or do I not really trust, you know, if I can't rule them out, then I can't really trust what I thought in the first place. And so just that notion of like recognizing that, um, just because someone has a story that's consistent with data, it doesn't mean that that story is the explanation for the data, right? We talk about this cute example in the book that was published in a stats journal to make an important point around correlation and causation. And the author collected uh, data on the number of storks um, by country and then also the number of people born in the country. And there's a really pretty strong relationship. And you could make a claim that storks were delivering babies if you were you know, from another planet looking at this, this tight correlation between storks and babies. But the alternative explanation to that, um, other than storks delivering the actual babies, is that those countries that are bigger have more storks and more people. And so these are the kinds of things that we want people to look out for. And they're not always as easy as that one. So we just have to create these habits of mind, as you say, Sean, in trying to get better and, and different forms of listening, like the question that was asked. The listener asked a great question about what are, what, what are some of the, are not listening, of learning, of different ways of learning and constantly challenging ourselves to overcome these biases, to, to become more active in looking for multiple hypotheses and other explanations. Right. Um, well, we need to, to sort of bring this to a close, but I, I thought I would 
end by asking you if there was, uh, if you had a particular, I don't know if favorite is the way to put it, or least favorite, if you had a particular example of uh, some kind of bullshit that caught your attention uh, recently that you'd want to leave readers with, I guess. Oh, recently, okay. Or, um, or whenever, it doesn't have to be recently, I guess. Yeah, I mean, there's a very interesting one uh, that, that, that played a big role in the pandemic um, that I could talk about, which was, uh, um, so there's been this big discussion about how how deadly is is COVID, and is it is it worse than the flu, or is it not worse than the flu? And the thing is, is that we, so this is this whole issue of trying to calculate the infection fatality rate. The thing is, is, we know how many people die have died roughly. I mean, you know, with, within a factor of two or something like that, we know how many people have died of COVID. We, especially early on, we had absolutely no idea how many people had had COVID. And so, um, especially as we started to realize that a lot of people were having it with no symptoms or with very mild symptoms. So there became this big issue. If you're trying to figure out what fraction of people does it kill, you got to know how many people have had it. And if a lot of people have had it, then it's not very deadly. So there were a couple of doctors in uh, Bakersfield who decided to try to figure this out. And so what they did was they uh, looked at all the people who came to their clinic. So they own a uh, set of clinics in Bakersfield. And they looked at all the people that came to their clinics in, in March and I think early April, something like that. And they tested those people for COVID. And they found that a really high fraction of the people that came to their clinics had COVID, you know, 10% or something. And so then they said, oh, wow, okay, so all these people have COVID. So actually COVID must be everywhere in California. Ton of people must have had it. There haven't been that many deaths. So it's no more dangerous than the flu. And of course, the problem with that logic was that the people that came to their clinics weren't random. I mean, pretty much, you know, the only reason you go to the clinic during the worst part of a pandemic is either you know you've just had a you know horrible accident of some sort, or you think you've got COVID, and so um, you know the the population that they were sampling was highly enriched for COVID, and so this is what we call selection bias. It's where you you're you're looking at a sample, and that sample doesn't really reflect the population that you're trying to extrapolate your conclusions to, and so um, we have a whole chapter about this in the book because we think it's so fundamentally important in thinking about data, and because it's quite easy, you don't have to know statistics. To be able to catch this, you just have to you just have to be able to think. Like you don't have to know what statistics these doctors use. You can just say, wait a minute. They looked at guys that came to their clinic and they said those were good. That was a good sample of people in California. That's like you know looking on an NBA court and thinking you're like trying to figure out a good sample of, of male heights or something. I mean, it's ridiculous. Right. <laughs> and so uh, so I think you know that's a really good example. It's the kind of thing that anyone can learn to spot pretty easily. Um, that one was like amazingly transparent. I don't know why, you know, the main reason I think that one got so much traction was because of the sort of the, the political valence of that and the politicization of everything. But, uh, right. but yeah, I mean, that's one that I thought was a, was a particularly sharp uh, illustration of the things we write about. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll mention, a, a, if I, I wish I had, you know, we could do this visually because there's so much gra graphical malfeasance oh, yeah. out there that, I mean, we could go, we could have the rest of the, another hour, Sean, to talk about that. So I'll put that to the side, but if we come back to that, I, we could, we could talk about that. I know we're closing, so we're not, but I'll just mention, you know, one of the things uh, going along with this science theme that we've been coming back to is, are some of these, um, what appear to be science papers. So early on in the, in, in, in the pandemic, there were papers that were presented um, providing some evidence of a bioweapon. And those particular papers were reported, uh, you know, in several national media. And there was also, you know, an explosion in social media saying that there was common um, genomic sequences to HIV, which sort of was evidence for, um, uh, for 
for it being a bioweapon. And the problem is this particular paper is one of the most downloaded and, and uh, viewed if you lose some of these, what are called altmetric scores. These are scores that measure how much it gets outside into the, the general public. Um, and it was eventually taken down by the bioarchive, but, but not soon enough. And I think that's an example of something that really had not been vetted that was pushed way too fast, too early. And I think that's an example of those kinds of things. But I think more simply, that's a little more complicated. But I just, just to be clear that, that that the paper was completely false. Yes, yes completely false. You gotta like right. you gotta remember your rules of debunking, right? You can't. You can't <laughs> yeah, tell that's right. Boring. That's right. Exactly. That's right. <laughs> this shows how hard it is when we're even talking about yeah, it, making so, sure. But, uh, yes, it but, was not so, true. So Please, it was, it was not true. False, and the authors recognized that it was false and retracted the paper and so on. But you know, this gets back to maybe it's a good thing to close on. One of the things we talk about in the book is. You know, the, the sort of the, the fundamental law of bullshit, which is Brandolini's bullshit asymmetry principle. And it says that the amount of energy that it takes to create bullshit is an order of magnitude uh, less than the amount of energy it takes to clean it up. And that's exactly what happened. People yeah. put something wrong out there that exploded across the internet universe. And it took weeks of, and, and, and tons of work by, by very good scientists to finally kind of make that uh, false myth go away. Right. Well, um... I want to thank you both for taking the time to talk about this. This has been fascinating. I could keep going, um, but we need to wrap it up. Um, this book is full of much more. I hope people uh, get it and enjoy it and learn from it. I sure did. Uh, so anyway, thank you both again. Uh, thanks, Sean. And, it was really uh, fun. Well, yeah. thank you, Sean. And thanks for all your work as a journalist. I think journalists, librarians, and teachers are really on the front line of all this. And, and I can't appreciate, I really can't say enough how much I appreciate all the work that, that you do. Yeah. And to everyone tuning in, thank you for spending uh, thank you for spending an hour with us. Thanks for joining us today. All of our videos and discussions are archived on our video site, which you can access for free. If you feel compelled to buy a ticket, please take that cash and instead make a contribution to the Community Journalism and Civic Engagement Fund via the Inovia Foundation. We appreciate your support. Welcome to today's virtual Northwest Passages Forum.